Welcome to Excess Returns, where we focus on what works over the long term in the markets. Join us as we talk about the strategies and tactics that can help you become a better long-term investor. Justin Carboneau and Jack Forehand are principals at Validia Capital Management. The opinions expressed in this podcast do not necessarily reflect the opinions of Validia Capital. No information on this podcast should be construed as investment advice. Securities discussed in the podcast may be holdings of clients of Validia Capital. Hey guys, this is Justin. In this episode of Excess Returns, Jack and I walk investors through the model we run based on Joe Greenblatt's Magic Formula Method, which is a model that looks for stocks exhibiting value and quality by looking at two distinct investment criteria. Greenblatt, who is a well-known value investor, has written multiple books on various investing topics and is known for his incredible market-beating returns while managing money through his hedge fund in the 80s and 90s. Thank you for listening. We hope you find value and enjoy this discussion on Joel Greenblatt and the investment strategy he called the Magic Formula. All right, today we're going to talk about um, one of the gurus on the site, um, Joel Greenblatt. Uh, Greenblatt is a uh, money manager, former hedge fund manager, um, a writer, and also a uh, professor at Columbia where he teaches a course on value investing. But um, the Greenblatt's background is is an interesting one. Um, so he basically started his investing career. Well, he started Gotham Capital in 1985, but he actually wrote a paper in 1980 um, titled How the Small Investor Can Beat the Market. And, and, and that was published in the Journal of Portfolio Management. And in that paper, he kind of outlined, he took Graham's strategy and basically came up with what was essentially a systematic value investing approach. Um, so that was the first time, at least in Greenblatt's um, experience, where he, he had actually articulated and written about a um, value investing strategy. Um, in 85, he launched Gotham Capital, which was his uh, hedge fund. He launched it with $7 million. It was largely provided by uh, Michael Milken, who was the junk bond king at the time. Um, from uh, 1985 through uh, 1994, um, Gotham Capital basically generated a 50% annualized gross return and about a 30% return um, net of fees. So it certainly puts Greenblatt up there with some of the best performing uh, managers of all time. So over that 11 year period, he really, you know, hit the ball out of the park. He was mostly running like a special situations, highly concentrated value strategy. And he was kind of looking for things like spinoffs and other corporate restructurings where he thought he could find an edge and, um, you know, find really great opportunities. And he clearly did that. Um, and uh, one interesting thing is in 2000, Greenblatt actually funded uh, Michael Burry's hedge fund. Um, and there was some issues with that and Greenblatt trying to get out of it. But uh, it's interesting that Burry was the guy that, you know, uncovered the subprime mortgage sort of uh, default and really capitalized on that. And so Greenblatt actually had, you know, a pretty decent sized stake in uh, Burry's fund for a while. Um, he, as I mentioned, he's a professor at Columbia where he teaches uh, value investing to MBAs. He's also the founder of the Value Investors Club, um, which is a website where it's an invite only, uh, about 250 seats where guys share uh, value investing ideas um, online. A lot of people may be familiar with Greenblatt, at least the people listening to this podcast may be most familiar with Greenblatt because he wrote the book, um, the little book that beats the market. And that's the strategy that we run on Validia. And what, and we're, we're going to talk about this in a lot more detail, but really what Greenblatt was trying to do with that book was 
kind of blend Benjamin Graham's value investing approach with Warren Buffett's quality approach and doing it in a very simple, systematic way. And that was part of that book series. Um, Jack, I know you remember these. That was like the, the little book series that were really popular at one point that Wiley um, was launching. And I think Greenblatt's book had, it was you know maybe a best-selling book because it was a very simple, straightforward book. And it had this long-term test of the magic formula in it that showed um, very good results. And I think we'll, we'll talk about that performance as well. Um, just a few other things. He, after the book was published, he started a company called Formula Investing. And so that was kind of like a robo-advisor, but it really was taking the magic formula strategy and then allowing investors to either have it run automatically or they could kind of pick and choose what stocks of the magic formula that they wanted to buy, but the model would be basically selecting those. And I think he had that up for a few years and then um, he basically rolled those assets over into Gotham Asset Management, which is the firm that now runs a series of mutual funds. There's some long only funds and some um, long short funds that utilize, I think, parts of this methodology. He might do it a little differently now, but, and I think they're holding you know much bigger baskets of uh, security. So I think it's like, I think I remember looking at his funds, I think it's like a couple hundred stocks that, you know, are being weighted um, based on these uh, value metrics, uh, based on how cheap or expensive they look, um, according to the model. Um, he also has um, pretty uh, big uh, philanthropic efforts. I know he's, you know, involved with New York's, New York's, the New, New York, um, charities um, and pretty involved in that. So it's good to see that a guy with Greenblatt's wealth and success is certainly giving back. Um, and he recently came out with a new book. I'll try to grab the title of that and then I'll let you go, Jack. But so the books that Greenblatt has written, You Can Be a Stock Market Genius, he published that in 1997. Uh, the little book that beats the market, that was originally in 06, but he's uh, since updated that. The newer version came out in uh, 2010. And then in 2011, The Big Secret for the Small Investor, a new route to long-term investment success. And then he has a new book um, on, uh, I don't know the title, title off the top of my head, but it's kind of combining this socioeconomic sort of stuff and trying to think about how we can make um, sort of, I guess, the world and investing uh, a little bit better for everyone. So with that, maybe Jack, if you want to kind of start getting into, I guess, maybe some of the details on the model, if you want to start there. Or yeah, you know, I think first it's good to take a step back and and look at this from the perspective of how a person would look at a business. And I think that's what's really cool about the magic formula is, you know, if, if, if I was just trying to invest in the business down the street, you know, what would I look at? What would I look for? You know, for, my first question would probably be, is this a good company? Is this a quality business? And then the second question would probably be, what am I paying for? You know, am I getting it at a discount relative to what it's worth? And, and that's really all the magic formula is. You know, the magic formula has a quality metric. You know, is this a good company? And then the magic formula has a value metric, which we'll get into later. But it's just taking both of those metrics and it's combining together. Like you said, trying to take Graham and Buffett and combine it together. And one of the good things about this is for, for investors, when they understand the strategy, they're much more likely to, I think, to stick with the strategy. And, and of all the strategies we run on the Validia, this is probably the easiest strategy to understand. You know, when you can say to people, is it a good company? What am I paying for it? That's it. Now, there, there's obviously some details behind that. But when you can say that to an investor, it makes a lot of sense. It, it resonates a lot with people. And, you know, from a factor perspective, we've talked about when we did other podcasts about our strategies, we've talked about AQR's paper breaking down investors using factors. They didn't break down Greenblatt. But basically what this is from a factor perspective is this is a combination of value and quality. 
Um, so it's, it's those two things brought together. One of the things that Greenblatt does a really good job at, and it's really reflected in the little book that beats the market, but also anytime you hear an interview with him, he's appeared on Consuelo Max Wealth Track. He's been on CNBC. Um, if you want to you know, go on YouTube and watch some of the, the videos and other appearances, I mean, he makes investing very understandable. Like I think that little book that beat the market, I mean, my 11 year old could probably read it and understand, you know, generally what's going on. So that that is a, a, a quality, a skill that Greenblatt has, sort of taking this concept of, you know, value investing and making it, you know, easy for even the beginning investor to understand. Yeah, and that that was the big breakthrough with this book too. Is you know, so many of these value investing texts are so complex. I mean, if you go try go back and try to read Ben Graham, I mean, they're they're great books, but they're very dense. Um, you know, this is this was the simplest book. I mean, what was this thing? It was a hundred pages or something. And they were very small pages, something like that. I mean, it was, it was, there was nothing like this before. So I remember how excited everybody was when it came out because there was nothing like this. There was nothing that was this simple and also coupled with these kind of returns to back it up. And, and we could talk a little bit about the returns. Uh, now, now it's probably a good time to do it. You know, in the original book, I think he had 33% a year annualized returns following the strategy. And then when he updated it, it went down to 23% a year. That was largely because 2008 came after that. But also that was 23% a year against 9.5% for the S&P. So this is really substantial outperformance. Um, now, other people have tested it since the book and they've had trouble replicating these returns. They've, they've found outperformance over the market, but they haven't found this degree of outperformance over the market. So we can't say for sure, you know, whether this is what it would do in the real world, what it would have done in the real world. But nonetheless, it is, it does show, you know, on various tests, it has shown outperformance over the market over time. Um, maybe not 14% a year, but, but nonetheless outperformance. Yeah. And, you know, we've been running the Greenblatt model on the Validia site for, uh, 15 years and it hasn't, it, it, it's, I wouldn't say it's, I mean, it's, it's consistent with our other value models, I guess, which is, you know, it's sort of struggled really over the last 10 years, pretty considerably. Um, but, uh, we haven't been able to, you know, produce the types of returns that Greenblatt has, but again, it hasn't been a good, good period for value. And like you and I were talking about before the podcast, you know, when we were looking at the return stream, um, you know, in early 2000, it was the early 2000s from 2000 to 2003, when the market was effectively in a bear market, you know, this type of value strategy really would have been delivering significant outperformance. I mean, a lot of the outperformance came in the 90s as well. I mean, the, the back test that he had in this book um, was a really stellar performer, but um, it, you know, it, it, it does have consistency with how we would expect uh sort of a systematic value strategy to perform, particularly in the years where we know that value did really well. Yeah, and it, this is something that's common with a lot of value strategies, but it's it's even magnified with this. I mean, if you look at his test in the book, his, in that period of 2000 to 2002, where value was doing really well, the strategy outperformed the market by 17% in 2000, 81% in 2001, and 18% in 2002. So that's a huge portion of its outperformance came in that period, which is consistent with what we saw with value. It's just maybe more magnitude than what we might've seen with other strategies. And also to your point about what's gone on recently, I mean, basically what you did not want to do in the past decade is you did not want to couple size exposure with value exposure. And this strategy, like some of our other strategies did that, you know, it tends to have smaller stocks, um, at least relative to a market cap weighted index. And it tends to have, it uses value at least as one of its major components. And so like a lot of strategies that do that, it certainly has struggled more recently. He hasn't updated his results, but with our results, it's struggled more recently. But you know, that would to some extent be expected given what was going on in the market. Can we actually kind of step into the strategy now and start talking about the, I guess the two criteria? Um, uh, so, I mean, to start, he kind of defines the universe and I'll, maybe you want to kind of talk through 
those thresholds and then we can get into the actual um, investment criteria. Sure, it's, it's not exactly a two, strat- a two criteria strategy when you get behind the scenes, but it, most of the, what drives it are the two criteria. So the first thing, like you said, is you exclude financials, utilities, and ADRs. Financials and utilities, because some of the ratios we're gonna talk about don't really apply to them, and ADRs because the data may not be as of high quality as it is for US companies. Um, then beyond that, I, I believe in the book he used a $100 million minimum market cap. Um, we, we, in our strategies, we use the same minimum market cap for all of our strategies. So we use 150 million and we also require 2 million in daily dollar volume, but that's not anything green black came up with. That's what we do for every strategy we run. And then you get into the two criteria. So the, the first criteria is value. And so what is value in this case? It's the earnings yield, but it's not the earnings yield inverse of the PE ratio. Like many people would think about it. It's more based on EV to EBITDA. So the, the earnings yield is EBIT earnings before interest and taxes divided by enterprise value. And enterprise value is just all the different sources of capital. So market cap, debt, preferred stock, minus cash. Um, And then the second criteria is your quality criteria. And that's, he used return on invested capital for that. So that's EBIT again, divided by next net fixed assets minus net working capital. So again, getting back to what we said before, it's, is the company cheap? What kind of quality business is? What kind of return is it generating for its investors? And so what you do is you take each one of those criteria and you rank every single stock in the universe based on those criteria. And you develop a rank, you know, with number one being the highest ranked stock moving down for each criteria. And then you create a combined rank. So you add those two ranks together and then the lowest values of that combined rank ends up, or the highest rankings ends up what being put into your portfolio. So your portfolio is based on the combined ranking of both of the two individual criteria. And then you can put in whatever number of stocks you want to. Um, I think he may have used 50 in the book. I'm not positive, but we, we build them with 10 and 20. So we build multiple versions of it and we build it with multiple rebalancing periods. So we've looked at it on a monthly, quarterly, annual, or also on a, sort of an annual hybrid approach um, where you're trying to only sell like long-term gaining positions. Um, and by the way, that annual hybrid approach is the closest to what he did in the book. In, in the book, what he did is he tried to treat it as he, he did annual rebalancing, but he was doing like a small chunk. You know, you started by adding three stocks and then you added another three stocks and then you added another three stocks. And once a year passed, each one of those sub baskets, you would look at them again um, and you would sell the losing positions before they right before the one year mark and you would sell the winning positions right after the one year mark. So that's sort of similar to our you know hybrid type rebalancing approach. Can we just step back to the earnings yield and um return on invested capital criteria so with the earnings yield the way i always like to think about it is and not let's just i know you can we can use the pe ratio or the inverse of the pe or like you said we're using ebit over enterprise value but effectively what the earnings yield tells you is and this is always i think a good way that helps me understand it is if a company has an earnings yield of 10 percent so that means that let's say it's it's generating um, one percent or one dollar in EBIT, and its enterprise value is ten dollars. So that would give you a um, a ten percent earnings yield. The way you can think about it is if you were the sole owner of that business, and that business generated one dollar in EBIT, and it paid out all of that to you. That's effectively the return that you're getting. And that's what the earnings yield indicates. You can also do it with the PE ratio. We're doing it a little bit more sophisticated here, but that's just a good way to think about it is if the company paid out all of its earnings in the form of a dividend to you, that's effectively the earnings yield. And obviously a higher earnings yield or lower PE or EBIT to enterprise value, um, the better, uh, because you know, you're getting more of the company's earnings or you're entitled as a, as a shareholder to more of the 
um, company's earnings. And in terms of uh, return on invested capital, you know, companies that can generate higher returns, so higher profits based on, you know, lower amounts of capital or networking capital in this case, you know, are better. They're more profitable companies. And by the way, a lot of those, if you look now, companies like these technology companies, um, you know, a lot of financials, um, I shouldn't say financials, but I'm thinking high, highly profitable businesses. Um, you know, those are the ones that tend to be, that don't have a lot of like assets, right? Those are the ones that, you know, will have a, um, uh, a higher return on invested capital. And that's, that's, that is a criteria that at least in our Buffett model that, that we, which we base off the Buffettology, you know, that return on, on, uh, capital is, is included in there as well. Yeah. You know, he was trying to as simply as possible, get at value and get at, is this a good business? And, and those, like you said, those are two, ex those are two ways to do it probably in the simplest way possible, because one of the points of this book was to make this easy. You know, he didn't want to, you know, he, I'm sure in his own business, he, first of all, he's not a quantitative investor. So he actually dives more deeply into the companies. But he, he also uses some more advanced criteria. But the, the point of the book was, let's make let's have one criteria for, is this a good business? Let's have one criteria for, is this a good price? And, and so he did that. And it's, you know, it was a much, it was a very simple way to try to get at those concepts. One of the things that um, was pointed out in the book, Quantitative Value, was the authors of that book, which we've had both on our podcast, they pointed out that that sort of a deep value strategy, like a, a deep systematic value strategy that takes just the value part of, let's say, the grand model, actually perform better than sort of the Greenblatt um, blended value and quality approach. Yeah. So what they did, what they did in the book is that they tested the magic formula, but they also said, all right, let's break the components of the magic formula into two. Let's look at just the value criteria and then let's look at just the quality criteria. And this gets back to what we were talking about before about people have had trouble replicating the results. In this case, what they found is the value criteria outperformed the combined criteria. So if you just focused on value and didn't care about, is it a good business? You actually got higher returns, which might be counterintuitive to people because in a lot of ways you want to, you know, people want to invest in the way Buffett invests. They want to buy the good company at the discount. But in this case, what they found, at least in their testing, is just the value criteria on its own had better performance than the combined criteria. One of the um, slides that we used to, when we when we we had presentations, we used to look at um, the performance of, I think it was from the book. And what Greenblatt would often talk about is like these strategies, you know, they don't always work. Sometimes investors see these back-tested returns and see these eye-popping returns and they think like, wow, the strategy will never, you know, underperform or, tra or trail the market. But I mean, we know that all investment strategies and even of the 22 models we run on Validia, no strategy has worked all the time. And especially these value strategies have gone through multiple years of, um, underperformance. And that's one thing that sort of Greenblatt likes to point out is that these strategies don't work year in and year out, but because of that, and because investors capitulate is one of the reasons why maybe they continue to work going forward, because a lot of times investors abandon these value strategies when they don't work. And then, you know, the performance, you know, three, five years out is actually better. The expected returns are higher because investors don't actually stick with the strategies. I thought this is one of the great things about the book, because what he said basically is here's this strategy that's going to produce significant outperformance over the market. 
And then also, here's why you're very unlikely to ever produce these results in the real world. You know, he, he came out and just told people like, you're, this, these types of strategies are going to struggle for long periods of time. And you know, we've seen that we run 22 strategies and there's not one of them that hasn't had long periods where it struggles. And so that's one of the biggest takeaways from the book. As much as the strategy was great, um, you know, these types of concentrated strategies are, are tough to stick with. And the, the point he made that, you know, when you see any strategy that has these kind of great returns, the odds are there's still going to be significant periods where it doesn't work. And if you can't stick with them when they don't work, you'll never achieve the results of the strategy. Did. Yeah. All right. I think that's a good way to wrap it up. We appreciate you guys listening. If you have any feedback or questions on the Greenblatt strategy, please let us know. You can put comments in or um, you can also email us. We're always happy to answer any questions you guys have. So thanks for watching. Thank you. Hi guys, this is Justin again. Thanks so much for tuning into this episode of Excess Returns. You can follow Jack on Twitter at, at @practicalquant and follow me on Twitter at, at JJ Carboneau. If you found this discussion interesting and valuable, please subscribe in either iTunes or on YouTube or leave a review or a comment. We appreciate it.